0: You're listening to Redeemer Church of Denton Sermon Audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, where do we come from? Every view of the world has to answer that question in some way, right? None of us were there. If you're a Hindu, then you understand that the material world came out from Brahma and that time is not linear, but it's uh, circular and there's, it, time is infinite and, and multi layered. If you're a, a modern secular materialist, you, you believe something different. You believe that either 14 billion years ago or 20 years ago, there was some sort of big bang moment where everything came out from there. Now, if you are seeing those, if you're tracking those two dates, you might think there's some sort of inherent contradiction there. I I don't necessarily view that as some sort of gotcha reality. I think those two different uh, times are just the result of scientists doing what scientists ought to do, which is kind of work their model and go backwards. Of course, there's always these factors and models that are unforeseen that, that affect our understanding of things. But a modern secular uh, materialist understands, uh, depending on where they are on that scale, that maybe that material realm is all that there is. They do have a a sense of time uh, consistent with the Christian understanding of time and and that there's this beginning and there's not this uh, infinite reality to space. If you're a a Buddhist, you have even a a different view of things. And in fact, depending on uh, which Buddhist you talk to, there might be three different understandings of where we came from. Some Buddhists believe that there's no personal God. Really, all that there is 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 nature. And so you can't really know because nature is all that there is. Now, they also kind of have an Eastern understanding of time within that. But some Buddhists believe, okay, there is a personal God and that personal God has purpose behind all these things, but we really can't know much about it. But then there's some Buddhists that say, listen, we really have no idea that, you know, it's inconceivable to really know. But again, they kind of have more of a, a Hindu understanding of, of the beginning of creation as it relates to time. Well, throughout history, there's been numerous views of this question of creation, there's, this is an, an important debate to have of, okay, when did creation happen? I, I think that that's a very important debate. And, of course, that leads into these discussions on the relationship between religion and science. How do those things sync together? Now, even though I think the, uh, the media and the political class tries to kind of put in some wedges there as if there's these two like, extreme uh, positions between religion and science, and they're really uh, kind of, you know, fighting each other, and, and I think they do that for political purposes. The reality of it is, is that uh, everyone's belief is way more nuanced than that. Like People live and believe these things kind of to degrees and on a scale, right? Like, just to give a couple of examples, the, the reality of it is and the truth of it is some of the greatest scientists this country has ever seen are Christians, There's also something uh, that happened a couple weeks ago that Harvard University just appointed a new chaplain for their campus who's an atheist. So we live in this very fractured postmodern world. And again, I believe it's important to debate uh, when it all happened. We should welcome and encourage that discussion. However, for the next four weeks, I'm less concerned about uh, when, and I'm more concerned about why. Now, I don't think you can ultimately divorce those two questions. I think the when informs the why, but Genesis 1 to 3 is ultimately not about when, I think it's ultimately about why. Maybe this is a silly way to think of it, but you have doctors in your life that can help you with when, but Dr. Caswell is here to help you with why, okay? This is part of my role in your life. I want to get to, okay, what is the point of this passage I want to get to what is the heart of this. And and I pray that you can hear that I'm not trying to dodge any questions with that. I'm very, like you, thankful for science. In fact, I view science as an authority in my life. I think there's uh, more ultimate authorities in my life. But I'm not threatened by science in any way. And I pray that you're not. And I'm not alone in believing that science is ultimately not in conflict with my Christianity. And some of the top scientists in the country uh, are Christians. My physician is a wonderful Christian man. Our family has had uh, heart issues, and we send um, our family members to the best heart hospital in the Metroplex, and we found the best uh, cardiologist in the Metroplex, and he's a Southern Baptist. So I don't know what you do with a lot of those things. However, this series really is an attempt to get to at the heart of what God is trying to teach us in Genesis 1-3. to These chapters do provide clues to the win of creation. However, D.A. Carson says this, and I find this really helpful. He says that the creation account is a mixed genre that feels uh, at times, that feels like history and really does give historical particulars. At the same time, however, it is full of demonstrable symbolism. Sorting out what is symbolic and what is not is very difficult. And I agree with him there. What is clear from these first three chapters is God is teaching us some theological as well as doctrinal truths that then inform our spirituality. And what I want us to do is, is I want us to look at, okay, let's major on the majors. What is God really trying to communicate here? And then how do we then apply it to our life? Really what I'm trying to do here is, is do exactly uh, what Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what we do with every other passage of scripture. We're just trying to see, okay, what are the main things the author is intending for us to understand, and then how do we apply it to our lives? Now, before we dive into our text, let me just say a couple of things about the the context or the structure of, of Genesis 1. Of course, it's famously structured around these seven days, right? Um, up until Thursday, I was going to do all of Genesis 1. And I looked down, and this was going to be like an hour and a half sermon. And so we're going to do this over two weeks, okay? So we're going to get through kind of day six and a half today. We'll get up to, to uh, through verse uh, 25 of Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 is famously divided into these seven days. And I want us to focus uh, uh, first on Genesis 1-1 and that statement about in the beginning God created. And then second, I want us to see how God uh, formed the earth. And then I want us to see, beginning in in, uh, day five and and the first part of day six, how God is filling the earth. Next week, we're going to give special attention to God creating humanity and what does it mean to be created in the image of God. And then we're going to look at day seven where God rested. So today, we're seeing in the beginning, we're seeing God filling the earth and then God forming the earth and then God filling the earth. And ultimately, my prayer for you today is that you walk away believing that God spoke. Creation into existence. So let's look at Genesis 1 1 and see that God is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. I think the Bible begins in a very interesting way. And to put my cards on the table, if it was up to me, and you should be thankful that it's not up to me, I would begin it a different way. See, what happens here is that the Bible simply assumes God. It doesn't give a case for God. It doesn't make these arguments for the existence of God. It simply assumes God. Now, my biblical worldview class at the Christian high school, I I begin with all these cases for the existence of God. We talk about uh, a scientific argument called the irreducible complexity argument. We talk about philosophical arguments like like, uh, Anselm's ontological argument, which if you know that one, it just blows your mind and it's weird and crazy and awesome. We, we look at uh, Aquinas' five arguments for the existence of God. But God does something very different here. He chooses not to make a case for his existence. He begins by simply assuming God. That's where Genesis begins. Now, this is pure speculation, but I think he does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think he just assumes God and doesn't start with a case because there's different lenses by which different truth claims are made. So what I mean by that is that depending on the person you ask, They have different measurements or different lenses for how they determine if something is true. So, for example, you might be a scientific person. You might be a romantic person. You might be a philosophical and a logical person. All these different people have these different lenses where we view truth from. And much of this is connected to the fact of where you live and where you were born. So if you are in the Middle East, you have different values that you're judging truth by. If you're born in, in the West, like us, you have other values that are very important to you. So based upon uh, how you think and where you're from and all these different deals, there's all these different lenses to view things. So some are more scientific, and I think there's great scientific arguments for the existence of God. Some are more romantic, and I kind of fit in this category. And there's great arguments from a romantic perspective on the existence of God, from love and justice and beauty. Maybe you're more philosophical, and there's fantastic philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And maybe you're mystical. Listen, there's mystical arguments for the existence of God. So it's not that there's just this one ironclad argument for the existence of God. But when you take them all together, all of those clues point to, at the very least, a reasonable case for the truth of God. But I think there's a second reason why God begins this way. The second reason is, is that the ultimate spiritual virtue in the Bible is faith. Amen. Do we trust Him? Yeah. Do we believe in Him? And, and that uh, is required here. That Listen, as we look at Genesis 1, it's less about a debate about God or a debate with God. But ultimately, we are supposed to trust Him and follow Him. Again, there's great arguments providing clues to the existence of God. I think it's very reasonable to trust God. However, the Bible calls us to believe Him, to trust Him, to have faith in Him. Therefore, Genesis begins just by assuming God, in the beginning, God. But the next thing I want you to see is, in the beginning, God, what? Created. The first thing that we see about God is that He is a creating God. The first thing that He does is He creates now, this gets to some foundational attributes about God, about who He is. It points to His power and His eternality. Like He's outside of all this creation, He's before it, uh, He's after it when, it when creation ends, He's above it, he, He's outside of it. So He's eternal. It also speaks uh, to His power. He's the Creator God, we're not. He's the one uh, that has created all this. So it gets to all these glorious attributes of God. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's unchanging. And out of these glorious attributes comes creation. Another way of thinking this is is like an artist painting a picture. The creation comes from within him. He's an author, he's a generator of it all. You see, it's, it's uh, it's it's as he planned it to be. He's the author of this. He's the creator of God. It comes from in Him. And it's best because it comes from His will. God is God and we are not. God is a creating God. Now, those truths are plain. They're profound. And and frankly, they deeply move me. However, if that sounds kind of like stale medieval philosophy or theology or something, one image that I find really helpful is, uh, kiddos, you might remember this. Do you remember how how Aslan created Narnia? He sang it into existence. Do you remember that? I think that's a very profound perspective on creation that C.S. Lewis brings because it highlights that in creation, creation comes from this passionate heart. Like this isn't staleness that happens in Genesis 1. This comes deep from it within a passionate heart of God. This is like Handel's hallelujah chorus just springing forth from him. When you hear the hallelujah chorus, what do you do? You stand up. It's glorious. It's profound. It's passionate. That's what's going on here. God is uh, no mere concept on a page. He's a roaring choir that spews color and mountains and beaches and lizards and elephants. Genesis 1-1 does not speak of a tame lion, does it? It speaks of something that is terrifying and beautiful. It speaks of a thunderous artist. He's lovely and he calls you to him, but don't think he's tame. God is God. Let's turn to day one. God spoke to form the earth. Follow along from verses two to five. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The first thing we see is that creation was out was without form. It was void. You could say it was chaos. There was a nothingness about it. And creation is taking that chaos and turning it into order. It's taking what was not there and creating something that is there. It's forming something into reality. He took what was nothing and he created, the Latin term is ex nihilo, out of nothing. He, uh, he took darkness and he made light. He took what was unseen and he made it visible. He, he brought illumination to what was without purpose. He formed what was formless. Maybe the most important thing I want you to see uh, today is God's method of creation. He doesn't like a, a, a chemist take some beakers together and start mixing things in his chemical set. He, he's not like, you know, a filmmaker who storyboards all this out or has this big strategic plan. What does he do here? He spoke. His method of creation is his communication. His word was the method of bringing about all of creation. When God spoke, it created life. One of the major themes of the Bible is that God's Word creates life. God is a communicating God, and His Word creates life. This maybe might sound like the start of a bad joke, but it's a true story. One night, there was a Roman Catholic priest and a Protestant pastor sitting at the same table. It's a true story. These two guys are at a fundraiser in their city, and they, you know, put at the uh, same uh, dinner table The two guys knew each other. They had a good relationship with each other. And so they were able to kind of have an honest but a real civil conversation about some of their differences. The Catholic priest said to the Protestant pastor, he said, it seems as if you evangelicals worship the Bible. It seems as if you worship the Bible more than you worship God himself. How do you justify this hyper-focus on God's word? Well, the Baptist pastor responded by going to Genesis 1. And he said, from the beginning the way God creates, the way he creates life is through his word. We don't worship his word, but we understand that his word, the things that he communicates, the things that he says, it brings life. We we don't, uh, we, we need to go back to it. We need to understand that his word is a demonstration of his power, and it's a demonstration of his purpose. God's word creates life, and it's a demonstration of his power. He speaks things into creation. Friends, we can't look at a chair or or we can't just say chair and there's a chair, but God can. God can say light and there's light. It's a demonstration of his power. God's word creates life and therefore it's a demonstration of his purpose. He he spoke creation into existence. And in a similar way, uh, the reason why a writer writes or a painter paints or a sculptor sculpts they do that for a reason and for a purpose behind it, right? It's the same thing with God. When He says something, He's doing it with intentionality. There's purpose behind it. Light. He has a purpose for that light. Humanity's role is not to create our own purpose, but to listen to God's Word and understand His purpose for us and then live accordingly. Amen? When God speaks light into existence out of the darkness, He's bringing vision and understanding, and He's bringing purpose. If you want to kick back to some of those ideas, never forget that all of this creation is for his glory. And never forget that over and over again, we're going to see this pattern of God saying it was good. He judges it as good. Now, that is for his glory. That's part of why it's good. But that's not divorced from it being good for you as a human individual. These things that he creates are good. They're good in the sense that they glorify him and they magnify his name. But they're also good for your benefit. This is what is best. This is certainly what gets, makes God happy and brings him glory. But living according to this, embracing this, believing that this is for your good. It's not separated glory in your goodness. What God speaks into existence is good because it's coming out from a good God. He spoke, to, he spoke light to the darkness. Let's look at day two. Verses 6 to 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So in the second day, there's a separation of waters, but it's not horizontal, it's vertical. There's some sense of kind of an atmosphere. Some scholars call this uh, the firmament, and it was like a, like a thicker, richer atmosphere. Some have made the case that maybe this is why people in the early chapters of Genesis lived for longer periods of time. But we see some patterns beginning to happen here in this second day, don't we? Number one, God speaking creation into existence. Number two, we see him judging that his creation is good. And then number three, we see that there was evening and there was morning uh, marking that day. Now, this third phrase, there was evening, there was morning, this is, I think, the best case for what is called a seven-day creation account, believing that, okay, God created all of creation in seven 24-hour days. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think that that's what happened here. I hold, I'm a seven-day creationist. Um, that's the position that I hold to. Now, you don't have to hold that account, I think, to be orthodox, but, but that's the position I hold. And where I get that, it's less a scientific argument, I recognize. It's a literary argument, but that's, that's where I get it is uh, from this phrase. Now, uh, you might say, well, what do you do with all the natural science that points to the, the world being millions, maybe even billions of years old? I say, well, maybe God created it in such a way that looks like that. I recognize that sounds silly, but I also recognize that believing that God came down, put on human clothes, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and then rose again the next day. I'm within the categories of believing miracles happen, and so I recognize that sounds silly to other people. I I don't want to diminish the argument, but that's, again, my take. You don't have to agree with it, but that's just kind of where I am. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. Let's keep, or the second day, let's keep going on day three, nine to 13. the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So during the third day, we see God uh, uh, speak things into existence, the oceans, the land, the plants. For those who advocate an older earth theory of creation, this is a great place to synchronize some of those positions where it it does seem that maybe this is consistent with natural sciences, understanding of creation, that you start with oceans and then land uh, and then plant plants. Also, I want you to see that there's this fourth pattern that begins to pop up in this passage. We, We see this phrase, according to its kind. So what he's saying here is an apple tree doesn't yield peaches, that if you take the seeds from those peaches and plant them, it produces a cactus plant. There's an order to all this. It's according to their kind. Now, if you're tracking what you can sink and what you can't sink, this is one of those things that you cannot sink with a natural science order of things. things uh, God's creation stays within its species and kind classes, if you will. We see this over and over, and we see uh, that God has an order to this. Also, once again, we see that God judges it as good, so it brings Him glory, and it's for our good. Let's go to the day four, starting in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. So on this fourth day, God speaks the sun and the moon into creation. He he always, I always think it's interesting that he creates the sun uh, after he creates the plants, which... I've had farmers ask, okay, what do you do with that? You need the sun to grow plants. Uh, I don't know. I think it's maybe the glory of God grew those plants. Um, uh, That's uh, maybe a silly interpretation, but that's kind of been my answer in the past. Also notice that God judges everything that is good on this fourth day. So all of these things are good, not only again for his glory, but they're good for us. Notice that there's purpose in these things. They're given to us as signs of the seasons and the years and the days. So all of these things have a a purpose behind them that is good for you. So just in summary on where we've been on these four days, over these four days we see God communicating. He's a communicating God. And when he speaks, life and creation happens. And this uh, creation has order. This creation has purpose in it. And life, uh, the, the life God creates, he judges as good. Now we shift to day five, and here we're going to see that God spoke to fill the earth. Look with me on day five, starting in verse 20, and we'll go all the way down to 23. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Verse 23. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. After speaking form to the earth, now God, again, through speaking, fills the earth. He speaks animals to life on this fifth day. He spoke sea creatures and then birds into existence. Again, if you're looking for a way to synchronize maybe a natural scientific view of creation and a Christian view of creation. I think there's something here that sea creatures became, uh, came first and then uh, birds and animals. But also we see in here again this phrase, according to their kind. And again, that's something that we don't understand that you can synchronize with an evolutionary uh, understanding of things. So sharks don't birth pelicans. Now, we do understand that finches can birth finches that maybe have longer and thinner beaks that can kind of help them based upon their environmental surroundings be more effective at getting more food. But at the end of the day, finches still birth finches. Further, this multiplic- there's this multiplic- multiplication through birthing more of an animal's kind. And notice this is a mandate. And we're going to look at the creation mandate for humans next week. But animals have this mandate to to multiply themselves. And finally, notice that it was good. Not only this creation, but including this mandate, all of these things God deems as good. They're for his glory. They make him look glorious, but they're also for our benefits. Finally, let's look at verses 24 and 25, the first part of day six. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth, according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, in this sixth day, we see these patterns repeated. Right? We see these patterns of uh, that they have this mandate to reproduce. And when they reproduce themselves, uh, um, they, they do so according to their kind. We see this once again. And we also see once again that jo- God judges the creation of the animals as good. This is for his glory and for our benefit. Next week, we're going to turn to the creation of humanity. But I, but I want to stop here for, uh, because I don't want us to rush past what I think is the theme of the chapter. And God said... God says these things. He speaks these things into existence. God's word, his communication, this is not an insignificant theme in the Bible. When God speaks, through God's word, creation and life come. I don't want us to ever rush past that. God's word is what brings life. And again, this is why I think the scriptures give this ultimate mandate uh, to leaders in the church to preach the word. That's the ultimate charge that I have for you is that I am supposed to crack open this Bible and simply explain it and apply it to your life. You don't need gimmicks. You don't need smoke machines. Those things don't change your life. Those things don't bring you life. It is His Word explained and applied. This is why we take seriously this moment in our church. If it's me or someone else, this is really all that we want to do. Because we understand that it is God's Word explained and applied, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is how we have life. As a result, I want to give you two takeaways from Genesis 1. Number one, believe God spoke creation into existence. As so if we can faithfully disagree on a lot of uh, the, the winds of when this happened. You can be an old earth creationist. You can be a young earth creationist. I hold a 724-hour days. You might uh, view something different. All of that is okay. We can faithfully disagree on some of those things. It all kind of depends on how you get there. But we can faithfully disagree on those things. But there are some things that we cannot faithfully disagree on. One of them is, is ex nihilo. God creates out of nothing. There is nothing, and then God speaks it into existence. So believing God's communication is what created the material realm, is totally transformative. If you believe that, you have the potential to have your life radically and gloriously changed. Friends, do you trust in God's Word? Or do you believe it's something that you can deconstruct and pick apart and cherry-pick what to believe? Or do you believe it's something that comes from within God, and thus it's something that is true and ultimate? Second, because God spoke creation into existence, this means that we are to believe his work and his word and his purposes are good and best. Do we believe his word and his work and his purposes are good and best? Every generation of believers has things that the world around them categorically rejects. I don't have to go into all of what they are. You know what they are. You know what the world looks at us and thinks is ridiculous and silly. Every generation before us has had those things, and every generation has come to this crossroads of am I going to faithfully, convictionally, and even courageously believe God's Word, believe that it is good, and believe that it is best. God's Word is good and it's best. We all know the areas where the culture rejects God's word. And the question for us is, do we believe the word is true and do we do believe that it's good? Do you believe that it, his ways are best? I recognize his ways can be harder, but do we believe that they are best in the way that we should go and the way that we find life? One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly his word leads to abundant life Jesus came so that you could experience that life so that you could have something better than the world has to offer he lived this perfect life to model that not only he is worthy to get up on that cross but also this is a better way to live and then he gets up on that cross and he suffers and he dies and he pays for our, uh, our sins. He atones for all the sinful feelings and thoughts and actions that you've ever done so that you can then be reconciled with him and have eternal abundant life. This is why he came. This is why he gives us his word. Do you trust his word? Are you seeking life through his word? Let me end with the founding of Narnia. I'm not going to read it all to you. but. Let me read a couple of, of sections of this. Again, in Narnia, in this scene here, you have the children, you've got a cabbie, who I think is genius, you have his horse, um, and they find themselves kind of stumbling through the dark. And then they begin to hear something. And, and let me read some of the account of the founding of Narnia. There's kind of two big sections and a couple of quick quotes. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from which direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once. Sometimes he almost thought that it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful that he could hardly bear it. The horse seemed to like it too. He gave the sort of whinny a, a horse would give if after years of being a cab horse, it found itself back in the old field where it had, where it had been a, a colt and, and saw someone whom it remembered and loved coming across the field to bring it a lump of sugar. The cabby said, ain't it lovely? Well, as the song progressed, and the stars and the sun began to appear, and then they saw that the music was coming out from the lion. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. The lion was pacing to and fro in that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lifting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green grass. It spread out from the line like a pool. It ran at the sides of the little, little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping at the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making the young world uh, at every moment softer. The light wind began to now uh, be uh, heard and felt ruffling the grass. And as the story goes and as the lions sing, the children see creation springing up. They marvel at it all. They marvel at the lion. They marvel at creation and how beautiful and terrifying his music is and he is. And they see that it's coming up from inside. And Polly thought, this is so exciting that she had not time to be afraid. And C.S. Lewis says, they were terribly afraid it would turn and look at them. But in some strange way, they wished that he would. So the lion, the song, in creation, that's were transforming them, it was all wild. Lewis said it made you want to run and jump and climb. It made you want to shout. It made you want to rush at other people and either hug them or fight them. It just brought this life to them. Then in the wildest, deepest voice they had ever heard, Aslan said, Narnia, Narnia, Narnia. Awake, love, think, speak be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. That's a good place to end, but I've got a better place to end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not overcome by it. God has spoken and come so that you can experience life, so that you can come out of the darkness and into the light. From Genesis 1 to John 1 to the end of Revelation, God's Word brings life. God is God and we are not. He spoke to form the earth. He spoke to fill the earth. He spoke creation into existence. And may we be a church that love, believe in, and are transformed by and experience life via His Word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this truth from Your Word. We thank You that You have communicated to us. We thank You that through Your Word life comes. For those of us in this room that have been transformed by your word. We testify to the truth of that statement. Your word brings life. Lord, may we be a people that don't shy away from your word, that don't focus on deconstructing it down to the lowest level for us to slip underneath it, but we would be a people that hold it high, that cherish it, that like David in the Psalms, says that he loves your law. May we be a people who love your word. May we be a people who faithfully live by it. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.